Uh, well, thank you very much for praying for me over these past couple of weeks. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I had a number of cards and notes and emails. Uh, I didn't do much on the computer, which was a real distraction to me because I have a lot of grading to do, but most of my grading is done on the computer. And not to be able to sit at the computer even uh, was uh, really frustrating. But I did get a lot of good reading done. So <laughs> that's a, a praise there. I got to read through the book of Ecclesiastes a number of times and also had the opportunity to uh, be able to go back and review a number of things, to read some books that I think will be of help as I teach to uh, try to apply some of the lessons that we learn in Ecclesiastes. Uh, you'll notice up here the audios are now available. Uh, if you go to my website, www.drverick.org, and you go to the sermon page, on the sermon page there's a link there to the Ecclesiastes studies. It's say Adult Bible Fellowship Lessons, Ecclesiastes. You click on that, and you'll see there where you can download and print the lessons that I hand out in here. They're all available on there, so you can get them online. And there's also a link there that says click here, for the audios. And uh, thanks to uh, Becca Kolstad and to uh, Mara Druhart, uh, those are now available and they're online and you can download the uh, MP3 files and listen to the lessons there as well. So they're now available. We wanted to let you know that so you can see where, what uh, is available there. Just a brief review of where we were at uh, three weeks ago. We covered the first three verses, but the first three verses covered almost one-third of all the material that we have on Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And as we look at that, just a reminder of how the chapter is divided up. Those first three verses dealt with worship. And the next verses, 4 through 6, deal with vows, uh, promises made to God. And then we have the fear of God in verse 7. We have justice in verse 8, and in verses, actually it should be 8 and 9, and ver verses 10 through 17 are money, and uh, the whole point of this, oh, thank you very much. Wow. Okay. Now we're really getting set. <laughs> thank you. Thanks, Mike. Uh, as we get into these, as you see this developed as we're walking through this chapter, it, has, it seems like it has a lot of different topics. But keep in mind, they're all interrelated. They're all interrelated because they're dealing with the practical aspects and frustrations of life. And that's exactly what all of us face. And in the midst of all that frustration of life, which Ecclesiastes talks about, the, the main key to responding to the uh, situations we face in life is to fear God, to fear God. And so as we're going through this today, we're going to skip now past those first three verses. We're going to uh, go down to where we left off three weeks ago. And uh, if you find it there in the sheets, if, you're, if you've got the handouts there, or if you have your old one from three weeks ago, uh, page 34, right at the top of the page, 
the last paragraph there at the top of the page refers to James 1.19. And I like the way that James summarizes what we learn about worship in verses 1 to 3 here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Because he basically says that everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Remember, James writes about the use of the tongue. He writes about our speech. And he talks about that very clearly. He lets us know that we all face that issue of guarding our speech, taking care of our mouths, uh, saying the right things rather than the wrong things. And one of the issues that Ecclesiastes is concerned about is that we don't also interfere with worship by our speaking. In other words, sometimes we talk too much. Uh, that's why James also says, don't all of you desire to be teachers. Why? Well, because teachers have to talk. And so there are more opportunities for teachers then to slip up, to make mistakes, to be inaccurate, to be dishonest, all of those things. So that then you need to be praying for those that teach, for those that preach, whether they're teaching uh, preschoolers or whether they're teaching youth or whether they're preaching in the service we need to realize that there is a heavy responsibility there and this is not to be taken lightly. But at the same time, every single one of us has that same responsibility and accountability. Now in this section that deals with promises or with vows, there are five commands. The five commands are don't be late. That's not talking about being in class or a church service or school or the job. Here it's talking about don't be late in paying what you promised God. Now some of us made faith promises to God for the building project for the church. That falls within that category. That if we make a promise to God where we dedicate something to him or his service, then we should not be late in making certain that we fulfill that vow. And so all of us who took part in that this is an area where we have to examine ourselves and say, have I been late? Uh, have I fulfilled the vow that I made to God? The second one, pay what you vow. Now, the word pay is used here because in the context of Ecclesiastes, normally what was vowed was a sacrifice. And sometimes because of the situation of the individual, they were unable to take the sacrifice to the tabernacle or the temple themselves. And so they paid. So a, a representative of the priest would show up at the home and say, you made a vow to offer a sacrifice on this day to give thanks to God for maybe healing, uh, for maybe a baby being born uh, out of a womb that had previously been barren. Who knows what the situation was? Perhaps a re, uh, surviving a famine, uh, surviving a plague of locusts or whatever. Normally, they were thank offerings. And so the priest would come to the home and say, you made a vow to God that you made known to us that you would fulfill, and we have come to see if you're ready to pay it. We will go and take care of the sacrifice for you. And so that's what it says here when it says pay what you vow. That's part of what is involved. It doesn't mean that all vows biblically have to do with paying or have to do with money. If we promise that we're going to uh, 
uh, come to a prayer meeting at church. We say that to God. We promise him. We say, Lord, I'm going to be there. I haven't been to a prayer meeting like that in a long time. I'm going. I want to show my appreciation for what you have given me. And then we don't go. Then that's a broken promise. That's a broken vow. And so it's our words before God is what we have to watch. The third command is don't let your speech cause you to sin. Mark? Uh, yes, there are. In fact, it, here in chapter 5, we're going to be dealing with that here pretty soon. Because, yes, there are vows that we make that are detrimental, wrong, and should not be kept. And we'll talk about that because someone will say, well, wait a minute. If I make a vow and I don't keep it, and the scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 23 especially, seems to deal very harshly with those who don't keep their promises to God. Uh, is there any way out of a vow that I've made rashly, foolishly, or even deceitfully? And we're going to deal with that. So we'll answer that as we go along here. Yes, that's, that, uh, what you're asking, is, the answer is yes. You can make a vow that is detrimental and should not be made. Okay? The fourth command, don't say that it was a mistake. Now, the word for mistake here is the idea of something that is inadvertent, unintentional. <clears throat> How can that be? How can we make a promise that is unintentional? It has to be that our synapses in our brain aren't connecting, right? We're not thinking rightly. Our mouth is engaged before our brain. Exactly. And so when we say that, that in essence is a confession that we have not guarded our speech and we have not been careful in how we talk before God. It shows then a root spiritual problem if we make that kind of excuse. And then the fifth command is to fear God because this is the sum. If we have a proper fear of God, we're not going to be making promises and vows that are deceitful, rash, unintentional, or unthought out. Instead, we're going to be making promises to God that we've carefully, prayerfully considered in the light of his word and his will, and that we have gone to him with all honesty, without deceit, without deception, without rashness, and we have made a conscious promise to him about what we will do with regard to serving him. Remember the vows primarily have to do, especially in the Old Testament, with the idea of declaring something as holy, declaring that something belongs to God. Let's take a very simple example. 
maybe in spite of the recession, or maybe because of the recession, you've been enabled to finally buy a home. And you get that home, and the first promise you make to God is, we're going to use this home to your glory. Uh, we're going to have, we're going to show hospitality. We're going to have a Bible study in our home. We're going to uh, have our neighbors in. Uh, we're going to witness to those around us. When we say that, we're making a promise to God. Now the question comes, 10 years down the road, and you evaluate what's happened with that dedication of your home as something holy to God, set apart to him and his service, how do we measure up? How do we measure up? That's what we're talking about here. It's that kind of issue. That's that kind of situation that we're looking at. Now, as we're talking about those things, let's keep in mind that there are also vows in the New Testament. We sometimes get the idea, especially today, because there's a strong movement among certain Christian groups of, a, of making vows and making vows a part of their Christian life in every aspect. And so there's come to be a little bit of contention here between those who believe vows ought to be practiced today as opposed to those who say, but wait a minute, those are all Old Testament and therefore ought not to be part of Christian service or Christian life today. And there's, as in most cases, there is a middle-of-the-road option. There is an option that falls halfway in between that is probably more correct than either of the two extremes. Because when you read the New Testament, you find out that uh, Paul made vows uh, as an apostle. He made a vow to offer a sacrifice to the temple. Uh, we have... Uh, not only the, the, the vows that he made, but you have vows of believers made in Acts 21, 23. You have Jesus address how his disciples are to speak and how they are to uh, not take oaths that they will do such and such. He's dealing there in Matthew 5, 33 and 37 with the idea of maintaining a life of integrity and in speech. He's not ruling out making promises. You have Ananias and Sapphira as an example of a couple who made a vow, a promise to God that was deceitful. They vowed to give the price of the, their land when they sold it to the church. But they purposefully withheld part of it for themselves and that was part of their plot or part of their plan. They did not plan to give all of it, but they promised to give all of it. That's an example of a deceitful vow. If they had given all of it to God, there'd been no problem. But I mean, if they said we'll give If they had said yes. we will give 80% to God and keep 20%, there'd been no problem. There'd been no deceit involved. You have other rash vows in Scripture too. What about Jephthah in the Old Testament? He comes from uh, battle. He's been victorious, and so he wants to thank God. And he says, the first thing that comes out of the door of my house, I will offer to God. Well, what in the world was the man thinking? I mean... In those days, the dogs didn't stay indoors. So it's not a dog coming out, plus a dog was not acceptable sacrifice. And uh, sheep, goats, cattle, uh, camels, what's he thinking? Who is going to be, or what is going to be the first thing to greet Jephthah when he's coming home from battle? His family. 
right? I mean, the man was not thinking. He made a rash vow, and it ended up in the loss of the life of his daughter. I believe that he uh, made a human sacrifice here. So he violated God's law in more than one way. We mentioned Ananias and Sapphira. But let's stop here and ask a question. And as I'm talking about this, remember, even in the New Testament, there are promises that are made by God's people for service, for prayer, for sharing the gospel, these, this is part of biblical living, that we relate to God in such a way that we tell him that we are open with him, that we make commitments. And there's the word that I like to use better than promise or even vow, because we make commitments. We make commitments when we stand at the altar and say, I do, in our marriages to our spouses before God. That is legitimate that is biblical, and it must be honored. We stand and we make commitments uh, of our children. We bring them to the front of the church to dedicate them, and we make a promise to what? We make a promise to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Is that something the Lord honors? Is that something Christians ought to do? Yes. That is not unbiblical. It is right. What is wrong is we make that promise and in our heart, we are deceitful or we have not really stopped to consider it. It's better for us not to take our infant to the front and promise to raise that child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if we're not going to do it than to do it and not do it. Because if we do not carry through with that commitment, then we have violated these rules concerning and governing our speech before God. And that's what Ecclesiastes 5 is all about. Bill, you had a comment? I know, six o'clock, even though he did make that mistake, and yes, uh, he fulfilled the vow to do sacrifice. And Hebrews chapter 11, which is called the Hall of Faith chapter, he's listed there. Yes, he is. And it provides one of the great problems in interpretation of how he would be list listed there. And uh, it helps remind us, too, that uh, there's grace, God has grace that he exhibits. And it's one of those areas we'd have to take two weeks to deal with Jeff the Believer. <laughs> I even hesitate about even bringing them up because of all the problems associated with it. But yeah, it's, it's a huge issue there as well. Now, have you been guilty? I'm not asking for confession. All right? Show of hands. But no show of hands. <laughs> Mike's first up. He's got both hands up. <laughs> but think about it. Have you been guilty of making a vow rashly? You know, as I was studying this lesson, I, I thought, wow, this is convicting, isn't it? It makes you go back and evaluate every commitment you've made as a believer. When we become members of Placer Baptist Church, what do we do? We commit. We stand at the front. We read the church covenant. And we commit ourselves to this body of believers to do certain things and interact with certain ways. That is a vow. That is a promise. How have we done? Mike? You know what? Uh, a lot of the books now being written are talking about, you know, um, what is that? Respectful sins, you know, the little things. Right. 
But those things are all integrity measurements. And, you know, are you really selling yourself out for pennies, you know? Um, I find oftentimes, you know, I hear, yeah, I'll do that, or yeah, you know, and, and people don't show up or do things. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking it because I'm one amongst them, you know? Right. But uh, even, you know, yeah, I'll pray for you. Okay, good. Just think of that. That is a promise made verbally, right? Does God hear that promise? Oh, yes. So if we don't pray for that individual after saying, I'll pray for you, that comes in here too. You see how real Ecclesiastes 5 is? It, I, you know, Solomon really gets into our lives and messes around. <laughs> the old pastor I had used to say, hey, if someone's yelping about something, it's because they got hit by the stone. You know, you throw a rock, the dog only yelps if you hit it. And uh, so, you know, some of us are feeling that because when we think about these, this idea of commitments and our speech, we can see that, you know, this is where it's at. This is where we live. This is how we live. And this is what we need to do to challenge ourselves to live up to the expectations of the Word of God. Now, having said that, how can we do that? We know, number one, that we're going to violate our promises on occasion just because of our sinfulness, right? How do we handle that then, Coral? I think that we have some words to help me help people. Help me with the things. All right. Okay. Yeah. Times when, when you hit a low spot in your life or you come in a situation that really has your back against the wall, you may think you're making a promise to God, but you really want to cut a deal with God. All right. And there's a difference between. Like Jacob. Yeah. Get me out of this and, and I'll do this for you. That, that's cutting a deal with God. All right. I don't think God's a deal cutter. All right. We can't cut a deal. All right. Oh, wait a minute. I did that on a roller coaster once. <laughs> <laughs> Did you keep your commitment, Linda? <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> yes. Okay, what happens, and that's an excellent point. We need to carefully consider whether it is a vow that we should be making to begin with. Right? It shouldn't be done off the cuff. It should not be one of those foxhole type conversions, you know. It's not those promises we make when we're under pressure or on the roller coaster. But rather that we're prayerfully considering this, like our faith promise, like our joining the church and reading the church covenant, like our commitment in marriage, like our dedication of our infants in front of the church. These should be entered in only through prayer and careful consideration and weighing the consequences of non-fulfillment. Kevin? Right now, my mind is thinking of when Saul made the oath that no man will until he got vengeance on his enemy, and then what he did, he would kill the man's son, ate it, and then he ate honey, and he was going to kill Jonathan, but he didn't. I mean, what, I guess to backtrack, or did his That was an example of a rash vow. And unlike Jephthah, he backtracked. And he did not follow through with it, rightly did not follow through. Now let's pick up on that. What if you or I make a vow, a promise to God, that was rash, that was 
perhaps deceitful, not considered carefully and prayerfully, how do we get out of that vow? Butch? All right, falling back on God's grace, asking for forgiveness, Diane? All right, and Lori? Well, I, I was going to say to confess that sin and ask God to direct you in how to move forward. Okay, now, in the Old Testament, there were only two ways to get out of a vow, even if it was rash or deceitful. One was for the priest to decide that it was rash and to absolve you of the vow. The second way was for someone who was over you in your family. To, uh, to nullify a vow. A specific mention of this is made for women who make a vow who are married. And the husband is able to nullify the vow that his wife makes if she's made a rash vow. So she would take that to him and say, I made this rashly, then he is able to nullify that. Uh, if, it, if it is made within the home, the father has the uh, power to nullify a vow. We are priests of God. Every one of us, according to 1 Peter 2. Therefore, we all have the authority to nullify rash, deceitful, unconsidered vows or promises we make. But the process of us nullifying is just exactly what has been brought out. Going before God, confessing our inadequacies, confessing our sin, and depending upon his grace to forgive us. But we are the ones responsible and have the authority to take care of it. We are the ones who must take it before God to get nullified. So we must take specific action to do that. Yes? So Jephthah could have gone to the priest. Yes, Jephthah could have gone to the priest. Absolutely. Did not. Butch? Right. In the sense of, uh, I think it's people like Zacchaeus, you know, even though maybe there were implicit vows in what he did, but the fact that he said, well, I'm going to pay it back pretty full. Yes. So that was after the fact. It was after he received forgiveness. Yes. Uh, you know, there's a different motive there. Look, look at Psalm 15, real quick, like. I know it's been a long time since we were in Psalm 15. <laughs> we're backtracking. About six years. We were young. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it this way. We were all younger. <laughs> all right. Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is talking about an individual who can stand before God in the holy place, dwell on his holy hill, and it describes the characteristics of that individual. Look at verse 4. At the end of verse 4. Psalm 15, verse 4. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. There again, we have the responsibility before God as priests of God to determine whether or not we need to fulfill that vow anyway in spite of it having been rash or not considered properly that we need to fulfill it. How do we make such determination? What do we have to consider in such a matter? Anyone? Does it honor God, Does it honor God number one? Pardon? 
What are the consequences? What kind of consequences? Sure. Okay, look, we have to look at our motives. Okay, Butch? Feasibility. Is it something I really can keep? All right. Steve? How does it affect God's Excellent. How does it affect God's reputation? If I don't keep this commitment, how is it going to affect the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ in my community, in my neighborhood, in my family? And maybe all we have to consider is what effect is this going to have on my children who know I made this commitment? If I break my commitment, what effect is it going to have on my children? I did not make this commitment wisely. I made it foolishly. It is something I could nullify. But what is going to be the impact on the lives of those around me with regard to their honoring their commitments and their fearing God if I back out? So those are things we have to consider. It's not just simply that we can say, okay, it's nullified. I'm a priest of God. It's taken care of. No. We have to consider more than that. And this is why I said prayerfully and in the light of God's word, we need to look at all those situations where we have a description of what it means to be men and women of our word, keeping our commitments. How does it affect our family? How does it affect those around us in the workplace? How does it affect those around us in the church? All of those things have to be brought in and we have to consider it. And sometimes we must go ahead and fulfill that rash, inadequate promise to our own hurt in order that the cause of Christ is not damaged. All right? That's sometimes very hard to do. It's very difficult, but it is what we're required to do. Well, let's move on. Uh, on fulfilling commitments, we should keep our promises to God without delay. Uh, we must mean what we say. The text in verse 6 talks about a messenger coming. I've already mentioned that. The priest would come or he would send a messenger at the time of payment of the vow. We already talked about what it meant here about a mistake. I made a mistake. I did it inadvertently, unintentionally. Uh, when God judges or disciplines, it can be catastrophic. We have to keep that in mind when we talk about the consequences. What about the consequences of what God will bring upon our lives if we don't fulfill our commitments? Uh, in both Old and New Testament, it can result in the total loss or destruction of the work of one's hands if we do not keep that. And uh, we, we really need to weigh this. It's a serious thing to make a commitment before God. It's a serious thing to make a commitment to God. It should not be taken lightly. And this is why in this context in verse 7 then, the writer moves on to talk about fearing God. And in the, in the contrast to fearing God is many dreams and many words. In other words, to fantasize and just be in la-la land and daydreaming all the time and uh, just running off the mouth and talking and talking and talking, trying to get out of a commitment, trying to avoid doing what we know we ought to do, is not demonstrating the fear of God. And isn't that what we sometimes do? We make a commitment to do something, and we daydream our lives away, and finally we wake up one day and say, uh-oh, I did not do what I promised. 
well, why didn't I do what I was promised? <laughs> I just whistling along through life, not doing what I ought to be doing, not taking things seriously, daydreaming, fantasizing, playing games, uh, all the things we do to avoid responsibility. And all of a sudden, we realize that we haven't kept it. And when is it that you and I are most likely to face that reality? When it's too late. When it's too late. When things have already happened in our family, our home, our business, or our church, to where things have fallen apart to such an extent that it's no longer possible, it's too late to fulfill the commitment. Or because we didn't commit, fulfill our commitment, that caused things to fall apart. For a, a lot of people, that comes with they get to a certain age and close to the end of their lives, and they suddenly realize, what have I done with my life? What have I done with my life? Now, Linda mentioned, you know, we're not as young as we were six years ago. That means we're six years closer to being with the, with the Lord than we were then. And some of us have already gone on to be with the Lord. And uh, I look at some of those lives. I think of James Tilton. Rowena's right over there. I think of James. And man, he's a man who kept his word. He's a man who, uh, when he said he was going to do something, he made a commitment and he followed through. And, uh, you know, you and I could go the same way James did so quickly that we don't even have time to consider that. But we really do need to make certain that we are keeping our account straight before God. We don't know what the day is going to bring. We don't know how long we're going to live. And uh, therefore, we must take these things seriously. And that's why in the same context, especially as we move on to chapter 6 later, every time Solomon gets into this topic, he gets to talking about death again. Why? Because it's a reality. We're going to face it. And then it really is too late to keep those commitments. And they're not to be kept just so they can say good things about us at our funeral service. <laughs> All right? The point is we want to be able to leave this life, go home to be with the Lord, having fulfilled what we promised and what we committed to, especially those things that we committed to the Lord in doing for him. Vows made on the basis of these dreams and words result in purposeless, empty prayer. That's not the kind of prayer we want to be exercising before God. We're talking with him here at times in these things, and we're not, it's, it's empty, it's purposeless. Without the fear of the Lord, there's no knowledge, there's no wisdom, and there's no blessing. We've seen this before in the Psalms. We talked about what the fear of the Lord involved. And one of the summaries we had are these six things here of what's involved in the fear of the Lord. Trusting God completely, experiencing God's forgiveness in reality. You see, it's only believers that can fear God when you look at those two things. To delight in God's word, to go beyond delighting, to obey God's word, hating evil, and steadfastly hoping in God's loyal love. That's what's involved in the fear of the Lord. If we say we fear God, what does that look like? That's what it looks like. Okay? And that's what Solomon is talking about in fearing God in verse 7. Now, in verses 8 and 9, uh, Solomon talks about the role of rulers. 
And the reason the rulers are talked about here in this is because rulers and the oppression they sometimes practice relate directly to money or perhaps the lack of money. You say, well, how is that? Well, how is it that people are oppressed by the powerful? Uh, when a poor person has to try to defend himself in a court of law, he doesn't have the money or the time to do it. So a powerful person with money enough to take time, all they have to do is to wait out the individual. We watched a little uh, a DVD the other day, uh, a, a animated cartoon, Up, about uh, Mr. Fredrickson and about uh, his dreams and his wife's dreams and uh, how he wanted to fulfill the commitments he'd made to her even after she had passed away. And uh, remember that he was the victim of a powerful corporation that had bought up the land all around their little home. And uh, they could let him sit there all they wanted. They had time, they had the money to sit there and wait him out until he finally made a mistake. When they ran over his mailbox and he took after the guy that ran over his mailbox with his cane and hit him on the head, that was it. He was in court, lost the house, they were sending him off to the home. You see, they could afford to do that. They could afford to wait out because they would oppress him that way. That's why Solomon talks about it here because oppression often is that. The rich and powerful having the time and the money to wait out those who do not have the power or the money or the time until they finally make that mistake or exhaust all their resources and then they can step in, buy up the land at a premium and get rid of them. And so Solomon is talking about this in the context of why it is that money is not only a necessity in life, but also can become an evil in life when abused or misused. He also talks about the successive tiers and levels of bureaucracy, how there's one official over another all the way up the chain. Now part of this is like we saw in Bangladesh that the, the guy on the bottom of the totem pole doing government service does not get a good salary. They can't afford to pay them. So how do they supplement their income? They take bribes. But when they take a bribe, they have to take part of that only, a small part for themselves. They pass it up to the boss over them who passes another portion up to the boss over them and finally makes it up to the guy on the top where he gets his cut. And so if a man on the bottom fails to take those bribes, then everyone above him is watching over him and applying pressure saying, hey, you're not fulfilling your quota, buddy. And I don't have enough to take home because you didn't take that bribe. And that's how all this works. This is the oppression that comes in. And you find it in many societies. And where's it? NYPD. NYPD. <laughs> and now he runs. <laughs> okay. Hey, thanks for serving in worship. Oh, pleasure. So let's remember that when we look at government, the, the point here too is the reality of government. Government comes at a price. When Israel wanted a king... Samuel told them, you know what that's going to cost you, don't you? You're going to have taxes. You're going to have your sons and your daughters uh, taken into government service. And they're not going to get reimbursed for all their expenses and that. And they're going to serve and sometimes without pay. These things are going to happen. If you want government, you're going to have to pay for it. And so it comes with a price. And part of that is to realize that if you have this system of bureaucracy, 
If you have bureaucracy everywhere and no one at the top who's ultimately responsible, who can cut all the red tape and take care of everything immediately, then it's anarchy. And so in, in verse uh, 8 here, or verse 9 rather, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. It's probably in that viewpoint that the idea here is that because of the bureaucracy of government, there is an advantage to having one person at the top who's able to respond and to take care of things. He protects the land and its private possession by the nation's citizens. And so when you have a king then in that type, when you have someone in authority that way, ultimately, that can be held accountable, that's how the laws of the land then can be fulfilled, even down to the uh, boundaries on private land on moving a boundary marker, one of the laws about that, that that can, can be taken care of if you have an ultimate authority overall. Well, the per, dealing with the pursuit of money, this is basic and it is fairly simple. And you have a lot of material there you can read through for yourself, so I'm going to quickly summarize this. Uh, remember that money does not satisfy covetousness. When we covet something, what, when, when we receive what we covet, it doesn't satisfy. Covetousness remains. It attracts hangers-on. It disturbs one's peace. It, there's greater potential of loss. The more you have, the, great, the more you can lose. Think of that. You cannot avoid death in spite of it all. You can't buy yourself out of death. The full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. The poor man can have rice and beans and sleep like a log. All right? We always manage to live up to our income and beyond, don't we? We get a raise, and pretty soon, <laughs> we're saying, where'd that raise go? We've spent it. It's never enough. The full stomach there, by the way, is from the same root as satisfied. It's the satisfied stomach. The dissatisfied stomach of the poor man still allows him to sleep while the satisfied stomach, in other words, the man who could eat everything he wanted and the things he wanted, can't sleep because of his concern over what he's facing. Verse 15, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. That's a concept we've learned from a long time back. Even as children, we've heard that and uh, seen it. And notice verse 17, what's the result? of focusing on wealth and money, great vexation, sickness, and anger. That's what results. And when we look at that, what is involved in those things? Well, vexation talks about the burdensome cares of life. And when we look at sickness, that involves the physical toll that comes on us as laborers. And anger is that emotional outcome of the frustration of ambitions that are not fulfilled or ambitions that are frustrated by those who are more ambitious than we are. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth of turmoil, Solomon wrote in Proverbs. It fits here as well. 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world so we cannot take anything out of it either. Exactly the same thing Ecclesiastes is saying. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. 
But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money itself, the love of money is, the root, is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The concluding thoughts. There is a remedy. Read those last verses, 18 to 20. The remedy is God. He is the key word in that section. To eat, to drink, is to share the enjoyment of fellowship and being satisfied with that which God has given, regardless of the amount that we have. And this is used by the historian in 1 Kings 4.20 to describe what it was like to live in Israel when Solomon was king. They were able to eat and drink and rejoice. That's before his disobedience. Linda? If you have a lot of money and not love it. How can we have a lot of money and not love it? In other words, I've always heard it's the love of money. Right. Well, so you have a lot of money. I mean, isn't that a... Uh... It's, it's already an evidence, a symptom, because we haven't given it away, because we haven't utilized it in some way. That's possible. Yes? Kind of like uh, Mr. Uh, uh, McScrooge. McScrooge McDuck or whatever his name was, you know. <laughs> Huey, Dewey, and Louie's grandfather or whoever he was, you know, with his storehouse. That, this goes way back. Some of you don't even know about that. All right? The comic books when I was a kid. All right? Well, we don't have time to discuss it fully right now. We could probably do a little bit of discussion on it, though, when we come back uh, next week and as we start Chapter 6. Uh, we could wrap it up there. And so why don't you think about these questions for next week as we, as we start off and we go into chapter 6. Why is the love of money the root of all sorts of evil? And what good qualities does money possess? Think about that. Now, I've given you some information there on pages 37 and 38. And I want you to read through this last page and a half in the handout or download it and look at it there from online and uh, take a look at it. The last verse of this section talks about those who are serving the Lord, who are the godly, who are serving him, who are obedient to his word, are occupied with the gladness of their heart. So answer that last question in the handout. What can you do this week to enhance the gladness of your heart? How can you do that? And remember Linda's question, because it ties in with these three questions. And let's come back, and next week we'll discuss it at the very start, and then we'll move on to chapter 6. Let's bow in prayer. Father, how we thank you and we praise you for your great goodness to us. Lord, we thank you for this book, Ecclesiastes, that Solomon, in all of his wisdom, in spite of the mistakes he'd made in his life, leaves behind for us these challenges dealing with the nitty-gritty realities of our lives, the things sometimes we don't like to think about, the things sometimes we don't even like to talk about, but they are those things we do live with and we do encounter day after day. Help us to learn what your will is in this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.